Well, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is asked a question about how people would know when he is getting ready to return. What would be the, the signs? What would be the evidence? What, would, what, what could we look to and, 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 and identify as a sign that Jesus was going to, uh, to, to come back? And Jesus gives a list of things. Uh, he talks about war. He talks about nations rising up against a nation. He talks about famine. He talks about earthquake, natural uh, calamities. He talks about um, uh, betrayal, people being you know, handed over uh, to, to, to governing authorities and, and betrayed. He talks about false uh, prophets, people uh, telling lies and leading people astray. Um, and he talks about hatred. And, uh, and if you and I were to, to, to pull out our smartphones right now and go to our favorite you know, uh, news uh, media outlet, uh, we would probably see exactly what Jesus has just listed. Right? We'd see the evidence of that in, in the world. And, and the point is that the return of Jesus is, is, is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could happen now. Right? And that's, that's sort of the point. But there's something else that Jesus says in, in this list, in, in Matthew 24, 12, that I find um, particularly disturbing. Jesus says this. He said, the love of many will grow cold. You think about that. The love of many will grow cold. The, the NASB uh, uh, translates many as most. The love of most will grow cold. You think about that. We as human beings made to love. We're made to love, we're made to receive love. What happens when there's a world that no longer loves? We look at our culture and, and we can see some of that taking shape. We can see sides polarizing against one another, people um, that they're exhorting one another more to wrath and more to hatred and more to, to, to anger than, than we are toward, toward love. And what about the church? We look at the church, particularly the church in the West. What is the heart of the church, especially toward those outside of the church? What is the heart of the church? Is it, is it growing cold? I think what's most disturbing about that, that line is, is not when I look out, but when I look in. When I look in, I, I, I have to be honest, there's a heart here that oftentimes is cold. And I can have a conversation with an individual who is far from God, an individual who, who doesn't know that God can save them, doesn't know that God wants to save them. And I could spend time with somebody and, and I never talk to them about the one who could save them. And I can walk away from that person indifferent as to their fate, not caring, apathetic toward what will happen to them if they don't embrace this Jesus that I think they need so desperately. It's disturbing to think that, that when Jesus is talking about hearts growing cold, that, that mine is one of those hearts. And if you could empathize with that, then, then I hope the passage that we're in this morning will, uh, will speak to you. We're gonna be in Luke 13 uh, again. 
Um, we started uh, looking at this passage of scripture last week. We talked about the fact that um, Luke loves to form these concise images and frame them in such a way. He takes um, uh, stories, narratives, and, and, uh, and, and certain teaching, and Luke puts them all together and frames them into one image and puts them in front of us for us to, 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 to look at. And last week, we looked at the picture frame itself. We looked at the beginning and the ending of the chapter. The book ends of what he's framing up for us. And on the front side of that, we saw there was this woman. And on the Sabbath day, uh, Jesus notices her. Uh, he's at a synagogue and she is bent over. She has this, this physical symptom of her spine being bent over, but underneath that physical symptom, there's an underlying cause and it's demonic oppression. And Jesus not only heals her physical body, but he, he, he rescues her, he unbinds her, he unties her from the spiritual issue that underlies this. Well, that's the front end. On the back end, it's another Sabbath day, the beginning of chapter 14, and Jesus sees another individual, and he's got these outward, these, these physical symptoms of, of, of edema. But underneath all of that is the real issue, which is sin, and Jesus heals the outward, and he heals the inside. And, and there's this picture of Jesus reaching into a pit, so to speak, and pulling him out. So this is what, what bookends the story. And, and, and what we see in this is, is a couple of things. One, we see the unifying nature of Jesus' message, but we also see the comprehensive nature of Jesus' message. And we added all that stuff up. You were here with us last week, and we, had, we walked away with two points. And the first one is God wants to save. God wants to save. Jesus looked at these individuals. He saw the plight that they were in, and he didn't feel obligated to, 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 to save them. He didn't feel like he had to. He wanted to save them, and such is the heart of God. But he also has the power to save, not only the power to save them from the physical ailments, but the, the power to save them on a deeper heart level, the, the spiritual level, the, the, the sin level. He has the power to save. And last week we talked about the fact that what that means for us is that we get to be a repentant people. If we have a God who wants to save us, if we have a God who has the power to save us, why would we not go to him? We, we understand that, that, that he has, he's freed us from the punishment of sin at the cross, but the presence of sin is still real, and we still sin, but, but we get to go to him. We can confess to him. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, right? We, we have this kind of God. Why would we stay away from that God? Well, this week we're gonna look at the, the inner part of the picture, what happens between those two narratives. And, and if last week a answers the question uh, of whether or not God has the, 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 the desire to save everybody and the power to save everybody, how come everybody's not saved? And the simple answer is, is that, that opposing his will is, is human will and opposing his power is human strength. And the reality is, is that in the kingdom of God there can't be two opposing powers or will, and his will went out. So here's the plan. We're going to uh, dive in. Uh, I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. We're going to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll go deeper into it. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray uh, this morning that you would remind us of, uh, of your heart for the world that you made. I pray that 
uh, we would see it the way that you see it. I pray that we would love what you love. I pray uh, against the, the coldness and the apathy that grows in us. I pray that you uh, would draw us close to you, close to your heart, because that's where the heat is, the heat that will thaw us out. I pray that, that you would do that work in us this morning. I pray that the words people hear are yours and not mine. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So uh, verse 18 starts out with, uh, the, with therefore. He's, he's building on what's just happened. Jesus um, has healed this woman on the Sabbath day from the underlying spiritual condition which, he's, which she is in, and now he is beginning to tell us about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and he gives us two pictures for what the kingdom of God is like, two word pictures. And the first one is a man, he takes a mustard seed, a little tiny seed, and he plants it in his garden, and it grows. It grows, and it's not growing into a shrub, it's not growing into a plant, it's not growing into a bush, it's growing into a tree, a tree so big that birds of the air can nest in it. It's a big tree. Now, if you know anything about mustard seeds and what they turn into, they don't turn into trees. And so this is a picture of explosive growth. It's a picture of exponential growth, incredible supernatural growth. Now, in the New Testament, mustard seeds are pictures or symbols of faith. So here's this faith and see what it grows into. It's also unexpected growth. You think, you know, if, if Jesus was talking about a man who takes a, a cedar tree seed and puts that into the ground and it grows up and it becomes a cedar tree and, and it nests the birds of the air. What a wonderful image, but it's an expected image. You expect a cedar seed to become a cedar tree. You don't expect a mustard seed to become a mustard tree. They don't exist, and so it's an unexpected picture of growth. And you think about what it is that we have faith in as Christians, what it is that we believe. The story of the gospel is a really unexpected story. It's not a story that you and I would write. I mean, you, you consider this, the God of the universe leaves his throne, becomes a tiny little speck in the womb of a human woman, is born, lives a righteous life on behalf of other people, takes that righteous life, sacrifices it on behalf of those people, gives over that righteousness, embraces our sin, suffers the wrath of the Father. I mean, to, to be killed. A God that would leave, become a speck, and be killed. Like, this is not a story that we would write. This is not how we would choose to save humanity, and yet this is the story that God is writing. This infinitely small thing, and yet it's handed off to these ragtag group of people from nowhere places, and they take it all over the world. So here we are, 2,000 years later, in a different culture, speaking a different language, in a different technological age, and yet we are the birds nesting in those branches which started out as a single seed. It's a crazy story. The gospel is unexpected, and yet and this is, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what Jesus is saying in the first image there. But there's another image he gives, and in, in the second image, it's a woman hiding yeast or leaven in, uh, in, in three measures of flour, Okay? Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, a lot of people look at this passage and they think that it's a parallel passage to the mustard seed picture. That the mustard seed is a picture of positive growth of the kingdom and the leaven, the yeast in the dough is also a positive picture of growth in the kingdom. Now, one ex is, is an example of explosive growth. The other is an example of sub subversive growth, okay? 
You look at the history of the church, the, the history of the church shows that, that it's grown most when it's been persecuted. When the church has flown underneath the radar, that's when it's thrived actually the most instead of when it was a puppet of the government. And so you could see one interpretation of this is that Jesus is talking about a positive picture of growth, but a little bit under the radar and still, uh, still positive. Okay, that's one way to look at it. Don't think it's wrong necessarily, but I think there's another way to look at it. And, and I will say this, a lot of the commentators go with that one, okay? Um, and a lot of people who are smarter than me go with that one, okay? I think something else, I'm gonna tell you what that is, but you need to choose for yourself. This is not about my opinions. This is about you standing on God's word. Here's the other way to interpret that. That this picture of leaven in the, the bread is actually a negative picture of faithlessness. The growth of faithlessness. That alongside positive growth of faithfulness in the mustard tree, there's a negative picture of the growth of faithlessness. And I say that for four reasons. First, you look at the context of the whole scriptures, the whole Bible, and in every instance, leaven is a picture of sin. Leaven is always a picture of faithlessness. So you go back to the Exodus, and when the people are preparing for Passover, they're told to remove all the yeast from the house. It's an act of faith and waiting for him. You look at the Leviticus, and, and Leviticus talks about making offerings to God that, that, that are bread offerings, but they don't contain yeast as a symbol of, of a faithful offering to God. You look at the book of, of Hosea, and you see uh, Hosea is writing about uh, leaven, and, and, and he points to like, the practice of adultery in it. The picture of it in, in Amos is a picture, of, again, of a faithless offering made to God. All of scripture, you, you look at uh, Jesus in the gospels when he mentions it, it's negative. You look at what Paul says about it in the epistles, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He repeats that almost word for word in Galatians 5. Throughout all of scripture, there is this picture that leaven is a symbol of faithlessness or it's a symbol of sin. Second reason I, I, I say that is the context of Luke itself. Luke itself um, portrays leaven as, as, as negative. He, coming off of Luke 12, 1, where it says, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, because it's hypocrisy. It's a negative picture. The third reason I say that, uh, if we were to examine, and we will here in a second, um, what, what Matthew has to say. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we, we see Jesus giving the same two parables, the mustard seed and the leaven. But before that, in Matthew, there's another parable given about the kingdom of God. And in that parable, we see two different types of growth happening. One positive kingdom growth, one negative anti-kingdom growth. Let me read it to you. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, 
I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. A picture of the kingdom of heaven in which there's something positive happening, but alongside something negative is happening. And right after that, Jesus follows that parable with a picture of the mustard seed and the leaven. So I think that what Jesus is trying to get across is this notion that there's, there's this faithlessness that is growing in opposition to faithfulness. And that answers the question about how people will be saved or how many there will be, and we'll get to that in a second. The last reason I say that is because of the story that Jesus is alluding to. When Jesus says, it is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. If you have a reference Bible, you will see a little asterisk or some sort of symbol, and it's pointing you to another passage of Scripture. Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, uh, God shows up to Abraham. And he takes the form of three men. It's a picture of the Trinity. And he, shows, and he appears to him as, as, as three men, and Abraham goes to his wife, Sarah, and he says, make three loaves of bread, one for each of them to eat. And so Sarah does. And while they're eating the bread, God says, hey, where's Sarah at? And Sarah's in the tent, and she's listening into the conversation. She's eavesdropping. And God says to Abraham, a year from now, I'm gonna come back, and you're gonna be a dad, and she's gonna be a mom, and you're gonna be holding this bouncing baby boy. And Sarah hears it and laughs. And it's not like, oh, wonderful. My dreams are coming true. Like that kind of a laugh. No, it's like, <laughs> like it's an incredulous laugh. Like she hears what God is saying. She doesn't believe it. And she just like, fob. It's just sort of, <laughs> in other words, it's the laugh of unfaithfulness. It's a laugh of disbelief and what God has promised to do. God confronts her on it, she denies it. But then in Genesis 21, it happens, and she's holding this bouncing baby boy named Isaac, and his name is Laughter, and she's now genuinely laughing, laughing with this joy and, and delight. But see, this is what Jesus is pointing to. It's a negative picture of faithlessness. We look at that question, is, is if, if Jesus wants to save everybody, and if Jesus has the power to save everybody, how come everybody's not saved? Because the truth is, is that within humanity, there's an opposing desire, and there's an opposing will, and there's an opposing strength that lies there. And so that illuminates what we see next in the text. Look at verse 22. He went on his way through the towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus is on mission. He is uh, in the last phase of that mission. He is going to Jerusalem and he is going to die. He knows what his fate is. This is the plan that he and his father have worked out and he is set in that direction. 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Interesting way to phrase that. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Um, we don't know who this person is. We don't know if it's a, a Pharisee or somebody in the crowd or a disciple. Uh, whenever Luke does that, whenever we see somebody sort of shouting from the audience, we're supposed to put ourselves in that person's shoes and ask, is this me? Because here's a person who is one, saying, I'm saved, right? But two, is saying, I'm looking around and there's a lot of people who aren't saved. Right? There's this implied uh, message here that, that is it true what I think that most people won't be saved? That's, that's essentially what he's saying. 
I'm saved, but I look around and most people aren't saved. So here's an individual who sees the masses of crowds that are following Jesus. I mean, just a little while ago, it said so many people were following Jesus, they were stepping on one another. All of these people surrounding Jesus, and yet here's this guy saying, I'm in, but I'm pretty sure most of these people won't be. You think about that. And the reality is, is that, that he's not wrong. But do you notice the heart there? And you have to ask, does he care? Does he care? Well, Jesus answers, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This word strive, it means to to run after. It means to compete for. It's this idea that you are wanting a prize and you are going after it with both hands. Like there's this goal and it is is the, the whole end result and the purpose of your life to attain this goal, to strive for this door. And what is this door? John 14 Uh, Verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door. The door is not an object. The door is a person. Strive for the person of Jesus. You see, this is Jesus' argument against pluralism. This notion that all paths lead to God. That it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Hindu or or, or Buddhist or, or, or Christian or whatever. All paths lead to God. Just, you know, follow something, and the end result is there's no wrong way. There's no one at the end of the journey who's going to tell you, no, you can't come in. Like, all paths lead to the kingdom of heaven. If there's an eternal life out there, if there's a a life after death, if there's a heaven, you're going to go because there's no wrong way. It's the argument of of pluralism, and Jesus is saying, no. No, in fact, there's not many ways. There's not many doors. There's only one door, and that door is narrow. And that door is me. It's me. You see, the kingdom of of God is, is where God's presence dwells. And God is holy, and he is righteous, and he is perfect, and he is not going to share his presence with beings that are not holy and righteous and perfect. And there is nothing that you and I can do to become holy, righteous, and perfect. Only Jesus can do it for us. You see, we talked about this last week. That's the difference between religion and faith. Religion is all about you doing for the deity. The religion is, is all about you uh, trying to assuage the deity's wrath. It's all about you trying to earn the deity's favor. It's about what you do. And there is nothing that you can do to get in that door. Instead, it's about faith. And faith is about who you trust. Jesus has done it all for you. Jesus lived the life that you can't live. He lived that righteous life, but at his death, he exchanged his righteousness for your sin. You see, strive for the door. Take hold of Jesus. He's the one that gets you in, and he's the only one. He's the only one. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Jesus is building on a a, a metaphor that he began earlier. He told a story about a master of a house going on a journey and he he returns, or actually uh, he entrusts his, uh, his household to faithful and unfaithful slaves. And when he returns, he rewards the faithful by becoming a servant and serving them. 
However, the unfaithful get a really, really harsh verdict and are cast out. Jesus is continuing on that parable. The master of the house, and this, this time, the master of the house has returned. And, and the second thing he's building on is, is the, the flood in Genesis. God told a man named Noah that he was going to destroy the earth. He was going to wipe it clean. He was going to start from scratch with him and his family, and he was to build an ark. And, and he and his family and two of every living creature would go aboard this ark, this, this picture of salvation, and they would be saved. And it happened. For 100 years, they spent building this boat, but then it happened. And they get aboard the boat, and what happens? God closes the door. And in closing the door, it is God who is closing them into salvation, but he's closing everybody else out of salvation. It's God who closes the door. It's God who determines when that door is shut. It's not us. He's the one that closes the door. And we need to see that there is this enduring patience that's happening here. I mean, 2 Peter talks about Noah as a preacher of righteousness, that for 100 years while he's building this boat, there's opportunity for people to repent. There's opportunity. They never do. But it's a picture of patience. And here God is holding the door open for us right now. The door is not yet closed. Revelation uh, 3 verse 20 says this Behold I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice And opens the door I will come into him And eat with him and he with me Just think about this Before we arrive At the door Jesus has already come to us Jesus has already come to you He's already knocked on the door of your heart He's already asked for you To invite him in and if you will trust in him in the work that he's accomplished for you by faith, then you let him in. And then when it comes to go through that door, he lets you in. But you see, he came to you first. You see the enduring patience as this door is, is open. There's something I, I want us to notice again about the end of verse 25. It says um, that we'll, we'll stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer, I do not know where you come from. It's an interesting phrase. I do not know where you come from. It's not that he says, I don't know you. He says, I don't know where you come from. See, Jesus is speaking to an audience of, of Jewish people who think that their family of origin is what will save them. They are sons and daughters of Abraham. And because of that family of origin, they get into the kingdom of God. But that's not the case. Jesus over and over again redefines family. He says, God's family, you know what God's family looks like? It looks like people who know him and do his will. Like it's a faith that leads to action. That's who the family of God is. Um, continuing on, look at verse uh, 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. I think he's talking about Christians or people who call themselves Christians. I think there'll be a lot of people who are knocking on that door wondering why it's not open and, and they'll be saying things like, I went to church, I read my Bible, I went through all of the ceremony and circumstances and rites and rituals, I tried to follow the Ten Commandments, like, I, I did all of this stuff. I was very religiously Christian in every sense of the word and Jesus is saying, well, that's great, but you didn't have faith in me. You did for me, but I didn't need you to do for me. I did for you. You were supposed to trust in what I did, not trust in what you did. I don't know where you're coming from. 
See, you're coming from a place of religiosity, and I want you to come from a place of faith and trust. This question, where are you from? You think about that. Where are you from? If you were to answer that question. What is foundationally true about your origin story? What is the truest thing about where you're from? Like I, I might say, like, I'm, I was born in Grand Island, Nebraska. I was raised in southern Arizona. I moved here from the West Coast four years ago. I felt all these, these geographic places that I could point to, but where am I from? You see, at, at bottom, before Jesus, the only place that it matters where I'm from is the cross. An event that happened long before I was born, but it's the place where I was reborn. I'm from the cross. I am from his atoning sacrifice for me. I'm from the fact that he took the wrath of God that I deserved. I'm from the cross. I'm from that place where he imparts to me his righteousness. I'm from the cross. Like that is the first moment of my life that matters. It's the cross. Where are you from? It continues on, verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. How do you feel when you hear that? Do you have that picture in your mind? I mean, can you see someone banging on a door, weeping and screaming? How do you feel about that? I mean, as we as Christians, right, as saved ones, do we sit back and say, man, that's too bad. Bummer. I mean, they had time. I did. I went through that door. It's really their own fault. And that's true. But do you notice the attitude? How do we feel about that? This is a horrible image. This is a horrible image. When you think about people that you know and that you love, there will be people that are banging on that door. How does that make you feel? Because if you can write that off, if you can be indifferent about that, if you can be cold about that, then that's not the heart of Christ in you. Verse 29, following on the heels of something hard, we see something beautiful. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. What a beautiful image. Uh, Paul uh, says something uh, similar. In Colossians 3.11, he says, here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barren, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's a beautiful picture of where you come from is you come from Jesus. Geographical locations don't matter and race doesn't matter and language doesn't matter and tribe doesn't matter and political affiliations doesn't matter. It's coming from Jesus that matters. Verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I love what one commentator wrote, Mike McKinley, he said, the insiders have traded places with the outsiders. There's this dramatic reversal. And the people that we thought that would be in, God knows better. And the people we thought were far from God, God knows better. We'll look at the last section with me, beginning in verse uh, 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Um, It's kind of unclear uh, what the intention of the Pharisees are here. We know that the Pharisees politically opposed Herod, but they also opposed Jesus, so don't really know what's going on. Apparently they warn him, but Jesus is not concerned about what Herod could do to him. Uh, he, he gives us this, uh, this Hebraic idiom that basically stands for a, an indefinite period of, of time. And, uh, and in other words, he's not in a rush. There is a plan laid out, there is a mission laid out, and it's God's orchestrated sovereign plan, and nobody, not even Herod, is going to, to disrupt that plan. But it is something beautiful that he says there. He says, um, the third day I finish my course. What do you think that means? crucified on a Friday, risen on a Sunday, sin destroyed Friday, death destroyed Sunday. Third day, I finish my course. The work of redemption accomplished in a weekend by the Son of God. Well, it continues, verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be convicted and condemned to an execution in Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. And this is the city of God. Think about that. Here is God going to the city of God to be killed. This is supposed to be God's city. It's supposed to be God's people. This is supposed to be a place on earth where God dwells in his temple and people can come from all over and ascend that up into that city and go to that temple and be near him. This is a place where God and his people are supposed to hang out together. This is is supposed to be a place where people and God come together and yet it's a place where people have defied God, where people have rejected God and over and over and over again, ever since God brought them out of slavery and gave them this promised land, they have constantly been rejecting him and walking away from him and rebelling against him and he sent them prophet after prophet after prophet and they would not repent and they would not turn. This is the city that kills God's messengers. Jesus is intentionally going to the city of God to be killed. God killed in his own city. Like, do you, Is that the story that you and I would write? Well, we see uh, the heart of Jesus framed up here in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. You are not willing. I want to save. I have the power to save, but you wouldn't let me. And you see the heart of God on display, and this is a humble picture. I mean, I mean, you consider the God of the universe likens himself to a female chicken. What a humble image this is. A hen gathering her brood underneath her wings, and this is God's desire. This is God's heart for people who are lost. Is that the heart that beats in us? The passage concludes. He says, behold, your house is forsaken. Uh, that's a realistic and a prophetic sort of statement. Um, uh, In the Old Testament, we see that uh, um, 
the, the prophet, um, it's right here, Ezekiel, there it is. You know, yeah. Uh, Ezekiel 10, the prophet sees the Spirit of God leaving Jerusalem. Sees the glory departing. God has left it desolate. And, and it's prophetic in that 40 years after this, the Romans would destroy the temple completely. It's still lying in ruins now. The house is left desolate. Well, the passage concludes. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, in Luke 19, Jesus is uh, coming into Jerusalem, the final week of his, uh, of his life. Uh, we call it Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Jesus gets on the back of a donkey and he goes up into Jerusalem and people are laying out palm fronds in front of him and they're laying their coats down and, and, and they say of him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. However, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That was the, the, the coming where the, the lamb is going to be slaughtered. What Jesus is talking about is Psalm 118, where the lion is coming to take the throne. He's talking about the second coming, where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You study that psalm, and you see that it's talking about the, 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 the triumphal coming of the king. So what do we do with all this? What do we take from this passage? We think back and, 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 and we go back to what we, we saw last week in God and, and what does he show us about himself? He shows us, first of all, that he's a God that wants to save. He's a God that wants to save. And I think that there's a lot of us who don't think that that's true of God. I think that we think that God is obligated to save sometimes, but we don't think that God really wants to save. I think a lot of us believe that God wants to judge. He wants to pour gasoline on it all and light a match. And that's not the heart of God. That actually reflects the heart of man. The heart of God is that he wants to save. And because that's the heart of God, outflows his salvation, outflows his power, outflows the, the, the gospel story, this seed that we believe in, this seed that has taken root in us. It, it, it's Jesus come to suffer and to die and to conquer sin and death and to rise. Like the, He has all power to save. And if you believe that that's true, then that completely changes your identity. If that's the truest thing, if that's the foundation that completely changes who you are and what you are, it means that you're saved if you've embraced this. When you think about the, you're saved permanently, securely. Nothing is gonna take you out of the hand of God. You are saved, you are a saved person, you are a saved being, and all that that implies. It means you have a God that wants you. When you think about it, you have a God that wants you and a God who has snatched you out. He's unbound you. He's released you. He's reached into the well and he's saved you. The implications of that. I want to talk about if that's your identity, then how do we live out of that identity? Four things to talk about in light of this passage that show how we should get to live. All right? The first is this. We get to spread seeds of faith, not unbelief. We get to spread seeds of faith, not unbelief. The primary way that we spread uh, what it is that we believe or what it is that we trust is by demonstrating it to other people. 
And so that requires you, Christian, to have a life that's exposed to non-Christians. It means you need to know people who don't know Jesus in order for them to see faith working in you. And they're going to see what it is that you trust, what it is that you're putting your hope into. What is it that you lean on? Are you trusting what you do? Are you trusting your work? Are you trusting your parenting? Are you trusting in your relationships? Are you trusting in your religious habits? What are you trusting in? Or are you trusting in what Jesus has done for you? And can you say, regardless of the circumstances that you face, you know you will be saved. So seeds of, of faith. Secondly, we get to strive for the door. We get to see that Jesus is the door. He's the object. He's the goal. He's the prize. He's the winning lottery ticket. And to live for him, to embrace him. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, I want the presence of God himself or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. Religion that points you to something else but doesn't give you God is worthless. He's the one that will fill you up He's the one that you need. He's the one that your heart was made for. You get to strive for him. You get to have him. Thirdly, we get to allow Jesus to shut the door. I think far too many of us, we've already sized up the people around us and we've already pre-shut the door on them. We've already pre-qualified them for the kingdom or we pre-rejected them for the kingdom. In our minds, there are people that we have shut the door to and so we don't go to them, we don't minister to them, we don't love them, we don't extend grace to them. See, what if the people of God treated every human being as someone who can enter the kingdom of God? What if we treated every human being as someone who God is, is holding the door open, waiting for them to come? What if that's what we saw, people? Lastly, we get to be a people whose love grows warmer as the world's love grows colder. We look at a world that is love is growing cold, but you know what? The world sees it too. But what if they saw a church? What if they saw a people where the warmth of, of, of love just emanated from them? In light of a world that is, is, is frostbitten, and it's freezing, wouldn't the church be a place where people would want to go to find the warmth of love? Shouldn't we be that people? I have four questions for you to take these and, and apply them, and you can discuss them over lunch today with your family, or you could talk about them in your house church or in your discipleship groups, but, but four ways to take this from a head knowledge into a heart sort of response. Are you spreading seeds of faith or religion? Number one, are you spreading seeds of faith or religion? What is it that you're promoting? Is it trust in Jesus? Or is it a religious form of Jesus? Secondly, are you striving to have the king or his kingdom? Do you want the kingdom apart from the king? How important is it to you that heaven has Jesus? Thirdly, are you trusting that God still wants to save and has the power to save people, or are you closing the door on people? Lastly, are you spending time with Jesus? I know that's a very simple question. Are you spending time with Jesus? But see, here's the thing. When I realized that my heart 
is growing cold, when I am indifferent to people who don't know Jesus, when I'm growing apathetic towards a world that is lost, the reason why is because I'm not spending time with Jesus. You see, I don't need more religious activity. I don't need to preach another sermon. I don't need to study another text or read another religious book. I need time with Jesus. You see, it's in that proximity of relationship that the warmth of his heart will warm your heart and my heart. Are you spending time with him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, we would draw near you. And as we draw near you, I pray that you would set our hearts on fire. God, we, we need to be a people that cares. You've called us to love. You've called us to, you've called us to have your heart. I pray that we would. I pray that individuals today, uh, we would identify the coldness that's there, that we'd repent of it, that we'd turn to you, that we'd spend time with you. And I pray that as a people, that is what would define us. That in, in this community, people would look at New Community Church as a place of warmth, as a place where God's love is expressed and felt freely. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.